Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. This episode of the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. And now, on with the show. So after listening to last week's episode, I was thinking so much about the topic and the concept of tunnel vision, that if you restrict your worldview enough, you can fit any number of events into that worldview. So, what made you think of that? Well, detail. We had this guest, L.A. Marzulli, Lynn Marzulli. Oh, okay. Right. Now, his particular point of view is that UFOs are part of the great battle between God and the devil. Well, you know what? When I was in Roswell, that's what they thought, too, at that Christian conference, which um, nobody knew that's what it was until the Christians came up and started talking about it. That's it. That's He's one of those people. Okay. You know what? Everybody thought it was an anti-religious thing and an anti-Christian thing. And from my point of view, it was an anti-we-have-the-answer-and-you-don't thing, which I don't care who's saying that, whether they're a ufologist, a Christian, a scientist, or whatever. They're full of crap. Mm, all right. Anybody who has, says they have, have the answer to everything, especially with UFOs, or are right 100% of the time, I know they're wrong. That's one of the few things where I can say, I know. Yeah. That's my belief system. They know they're right, and I know they're not. Because See, this is why we should have had Greg on a long time ago, Gene. <laughs> He's one of us. That's right. We need more of us because we have so many of them. Well, I, I'm accused sometimes of not really expressing opinion or not having opinion. Moral things or you know, intellectual dishonesty or willful stupidity or whatever, I have definite uh, convictions about those. About the UFO subject, not, not many. Well, let, let's get right to it then. So as far as the UFO subject goes, I mean, what is your personal, uh, you don't want to, I don't want to use the term belief, but what are your, what are some of your opinions about what this might represent? Or that's a good way to put it. What it might represent. See, we, we get yeah. trapped in language just by, you know, talking about things. I don't think we have the language to describe what UFOs are or what causes them. But my core, whatever, working hypothesis, if you don't want to use the word belief, yeah, that's good, working hypothesis, is that there is, a, there is some intelligence that is not human, which interacts with us from time to time and has been for probably since there have been humans. You see, that's where these people get into their rant. By the way, I was looking at this Christian symposium on aliens for Roswell, New Mexico. That's what yeah. I was talking about. Okay, now, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that strange person whose voice you hear every so often, that's Greg Bishop, who has joined us for this discussion. I had no introduction whatsoever. Are you going to edit one in later? No. We don't do the whole introduction thing. We just I need right no to... introduction. That's, that's flattering. Thank you. Okay, so basically Greg Bishop needs no introduction, but amongst the speakers is a guy named Stephen Eulish, Ph.D. Now, the reason I know of this guy is he wrote a science fiction book, a very bad science fiction book, that repeats the same sort of nonsense that Lynn Marzulli repeats, except that in the end, everyone who survives this great Harpazo deception, which is the title of the book, The Real Story of UFOs, they survive, they achieve the rapture, so they all go up in heaven, and that's it. Have you seen a UFO? That's the end of the book. It's about our end oh, times. It's, it's a science it's fiction a, book. It's a science fiction book, all right. 
Right. It's but, but, science fiction, which seems like some sort of a crazy oxymoron. But Well, what's no, funny I, is here, I have to say, just so everybody knows, as a point of clarification, the late Lewis Kaplan, my wife's uncle, was a key player in that movement, unfortunately. Which movement? The Christian <laughs> UFO research movement. He was a Jewish Christian UFO researcher? Yes. <laughs> I love way of, metaphors. That's great. We know another one of those, and it's not a good group to be part of. But actually, Christian science fiction, isn't that any fiction that's in a Christian science library? <laughs> just, just curious. I mean, words have I meaning, Gene. don't think this particular book would make it into a Christian science library. I just don't think it's going to happen. I'm not picking on Christians. I don't want to pick on Christians. What I pick on is people who say they have the right answer and you don't and try to force it on you. That's what I pick on. Christians in general, I have no problem with. I was, I was raised a, a Lutheran and partially Buddhist, I guess, and I don't have any problem with anybody's... Uh, ideas, as long as they're willing to discuss them and not shove them down my throat. What if they're willing to discuss them but won't allow logic to get into the discussion? Do you think logic is a useful tool in understanding the paranormal, Greg Bishop? To a point, yes. Illogic and an artistic view of things and a creative view of things, I think, is just as valuable in a lot of cases. Valuable or valid? Could you differentiate between those two things? Valuable or what? Or valid. Uh, both. Because the the um, phenomenon seems to not approach us in a logical way in a lot in a lot of cases. So if you think logically, you're already a step behind in some cases. You know, in in looking at the totality of the UFO phenomenon. Am I making sense? I think we'll get there gradually. <laughs> you know what? Maybe the best way to approach this is to look at your recommended reading list. Okay. All right. Maybe we could look at each one of these books, explain why they contribute to one's learning process about UFOs. And I'm not going to take it in order here, but maybe I'll just throw a few names out there. There's a book called The New Inquisition by Robert Anton Wilson. The book yes. itself is not new. It's 22 years old. But why do you think that book is of significance for somebody who wants to understand more about this stuff? Um, there's not much UFO stuff in that book. Um, but it is a primer in a way to think and look at things and consider new information and anomalies. And what he advocates in the book is looking at the way something's described, the language, who's presenting it to you. That's very important. And um, also, you know, as an overriding you know theme in the book is to guard against any kind of idolatrous or, or uh, rigid thought systems which blind you to any new ideas thinking or, you know, God forbid somebody's ideas who may have a little bit more on the ball than you and, and to be able to listen to them um, critically to be sure, but also to consider new ideas. You know, the whole thing is basically a plea for, for um, free thinking, um, for um, educated, intelligent free thinking. And um, I can't think of anything better to approach the UFO subject than educated, intelligent, free thinking. Well, that's an important point here, and it kind of goes back to what I started the discussion with, which is this tunnel vision problem in the UFO field. And we have people, and maybe we emphasize just the Christian UFO movement, but it's not just that. It's the people who say, it's got to be ET and nothing else. 
Well, yeah, well, that's most that's most people interested in the UFO thing. That's why people get interested in it in a lot of ways, because it's, it's fun to think that there might be aliens coming from other planets. That may be true, but uh, like I said, reading that, that uh, New Inquisition book, you've already locked yourself into one way of looking at something which has re no real evidence for it yet. It's just one of many ideas, and it's the only one most people hear. Uh, UFO e equals ET. I mean, the, the, there's been uh, Nick's written about this. Uh, Leslie, no, um, Regan Lee, I think, has written about it, and I have to a certain extent. Um, the idea that when somebody says UFO in any you know context... It means aliens coming from other planets, and that's so limiting, and I wish we could drop that for a while. Well, now, that is obviously a byproduct of the cultural conditioning yeah. that, that we all live in, that Robert Anton Wilson, essentially, his a big part of his spiel was the idea of this thing called the reality tunnel. Yeah. Essentially, right? That essentially you perceive the world through a set of preconditions that every human has that make you sort of go in a certain direction when using any kind of senses, essentially, when, when dealing with parsing what's around you. And so that your senses are basically feeding stuff into your mind through your conditioning. And you have to sort of see everything in that filter because that's sort of the way that human beings work. And so is this a problem where essentially we're constrained by our meat space? We're constrained by the, the physicality of the way our brain works, and that forces us to think in a certain way? Yeah, well, that, I think that was his point, and um, you know, I'm, I may be dropping into his belief system, but his belief system, and a lot of people that follow it, and you know, he's not the first one, he was just eloquent about it, is yeah. that first and foremost, you must be aware of these things that you just said. You have to be aware that you're a part of a culture. You have to be aware that you're trapped in your own um, upbringing and belief system and those of people around you and what the media tells you and, you know, books you read and all that. But but the point is to be aware of it, you know, not and, and be aware that, you, you know, everything you say, everything you think, um, examine it in the context of you being preconditioned to think that way. And, and, um, and the other thing which is very important is language traps us. Um, there's a few word problems tests in the book for, for the reader, and uh, may, what they make you realize is that um, language, especially the English language that we think can describe anything, is very limiting. And people don't realize that usually. There are not the words to describe what certain things are. And a lot of that has to do with the UFO uh, subject. And as soon as we codify it with our culture, you know, with the movies and science fiction and all that other stuff, that's the only box that your mind has to put it in. This is something that Dean Radin, I was discussing with him when I did the interview with him, that uh, when a weird thing comes along, an anomalous experience, your brain is sitting there furiously trying to stuff it into a box so you can make sense of it immediately. It's a, it's a survival mechanism. I mean, that's not, that's not even related culturally. And um, the minute your subconscious decides what something is, that's what it is, and that's what you're going to see, and that's how you're going to remember it, where, you know, it may not be what was objectively, which is a very loaded word, there when it happened to you, if I'm making sense. Well, no, absolutely. And even when you get into the, the use of language, I mean, uh, uh, Bob always had this idea that the word is 
is something that you should always try to avoid and describe. Did you notice if you look on UFO Mystic on a lot of my writing, uh-huh. I try to avoid using the word "is" or any iteration of it. Yeah, like. I assume that that's basically a, a Wilson influence on your thinking. Very much so. I will. I I try not to use the word "is" and I always use "seems." And I think, or my opinion, I don't say this is and you're wrong or, you know, unless somebody gets belligerent with me, then that, 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 that little uh, uh, mask drops. <laughs> well, at least the point is here that there's certainly plenty of room for being emotional. Now, I don't want to really rush past that, but if we spent an hour on everybody's book, and certainly Robert Anton Wilson, I know, David, you knew him, right? I and, do know. Right, yeah. and my first wife, Geneva Hagen knew him as well so you know so i guess i knew him by fourth hand or something like that i I visited with him about three times uh at his home in in santa cruz the last time was about two or three years before he uh passed away and i went to his um memorial service in santa cruz and there were a lot of interesting and cool people there I, i really enjoyed it and then right right uh right before it ended we left and went to the bigfoot museum which i thought bob would have liked Perfect. <laughs> he would have been a great guest on this show if he survived. I wasn't a big reader of his stuff, but what I read of it, I really, really cherished. Robert Anton Wilson is someone you really can't talk about enough in many ways. Yeah, that's true. Really, I mean, you go on forever. Yeah, and, 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 and some people should because he's actually sort of been shuffled away. He's another one of these guys who the, the world of mainstream thought marginalized him. And what's real sad about that is that they marginalized him in the way that I think they should have marginalized Timothy Leary. And I've gotten a lot of trouble with mutual friends that I, that I have with Wilson where I was very open in my critiques ab- about Timothy Leary and his status as a hero of the counterculture. And, and the real reason for that is that, like a lot of other people, I sort of looked up to Timothy Leary in some ways, knowing a certain amount about him, until I had the opportunity in 1991 see him speak he actually can't this is at a time when i was working at industrial light and magic and we sometimes used to have these lunchtime speakers come and do special presentations Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Are you ready? 
to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, Separating Signal from Noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. You're listening to the Paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio. We're talking to Greg Bishop, and we're focusing on people who have influenced him in terms of his UFO-related theories. We covered some of his reading list, and we're focusing beginning Robert Anton Wilson because he's influenced a lot of creative thought from a lot of oh, yeah. people. But now David started to tell us about the time that he attended... A lecture, a speech, something, a presentation by Timothy Leary. And every time you say Timothy Leary, I think of the lines from the song, The Moody Blues. Timothy Leary's dead. No, no, no. Uh, He's on the outside looking in. Forget it. Yeah. All right. Well, that was sort of a... you got to work that joke in better, Gene. (laughs) Delivery in these things. Well, you know what? I was trying to basically keep it low-key. Not really okay. emphasize it. It's an L-O-K-I. All right. See. I got it. I understand. No, so the thing about it, you know, Bob would talk up to me. Timothy Leary was one of his, his mentors when I was here. And um, I saw Leary speak at this lunchtime special presentation thing he did at uh, Industrial Light and Magic. And I walked out, and it was in uh, yeah, uh, C-Building Screening Room, one of the nicest screening rooms in the Bay Area. Spent many hours sleeping in the back of that of that room on one of the couches after we'd be putting in, you know, 27-hour days. But uh, I walked out of that furious. I was, I'll never forget, I was so angry because I felt so ripped off because Leary was such a, I hate to say it like this, and I know that there are, I know, Greg, you might, you might not like when I say this, but the man was a total moron. He was a buffoon. I don't know if he was just off that day. Uh, but he really made a complete ass of himself in front of a, a room full of fairly bright people who, again, you know, one in there looking for maybe not enlightenment of any sort, but certainly uh, an intelligent discussion. And I think a lot of us walked out thinking, what the hell was that all about? And so it, it's kind of unfortunate because some there are some friends of mine who think that Leary had some real insight to offer. But I know that the problem is that you have one experience like that with someone in meat space in the real world, and you walk out of it then sort of questioning everything that you assumed about what that guy said. So my question for you, Greg, is how do you separate perhaps the ideas from the person? Is that a useful exercise? Yeah, of course it's a useful exercise. You know, I'll give an exa- a couple of examples of filmmakers very difficult people to get along with, by all accounts. Oliver Stone, one of them. Stanley Kubrick, another one. But look at their films. Don't look at their personality or something they said once or twice. Look at something that they wanted to present to the public as, this is me, this is what I'm thinking. 
um, this is what I want you to remember me for when I'm not around or whatever. Their presentation, what, what I'm saying, what I want to say about Leary is I didn't have that experience with him. I met him twice. One time I got to talk to him for about maybe 40 minutes and we had a great talk. Um, this was privately in a green room before a talk. And, um, it, you know, I, I did, my opinion did not change of him. The people that still held him in high regard, um, probably either got him on a good day or all they had done was read his books. Now, yes, the books are full of probably some, you know, uh, hippie gibberish, but they're also full of different ways to look at how people look at themselves. They were probably a bit more convoluted and not as clear thinking as um, Wilson did. I mean, they basically had the same message. Just Leary did it in a, you know, pop culture, um, hippie, maybe postmodern way. And uh, Wilson did it in a, in a scholarly kind of fun way, if, if you're willing to uh, keep up with him. So, yeah, one bad experience with somebody doesn't really turn me off to everything they do. Unless they're personally rude to me, then it's a little more difficult. But then, you know, I, I, I try to separate that from their main message. Um, I had this discussion on another show and somebody was saying, well, if, you know, if somebody makes one mistake in something they've done or something they've written, this is a slightly different uh, tangent, does that mean everything they've done is, is, is suspect? No, because nobody is perfect. I made a mistake in maybe a couple of mistakes in Project Beta. I reported that, that Doty had gotten a, a law degree, which is absolutely untrue, and I didn't check it out. The reason I didn't check it out is because it was basically in the last two days before I had to turn in the book and I needed to put some kind of um, where are they now thing in there. And I thought, okay, I'll just take this. But that's a that's a pretty egregious um, mistake. Does that mean everything else I've written is, is uh, under question now? Probably it does. But it doesn't mean you can throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and um, in, a, in a roundabout way, that's how I would look at Leary after you tell me that story. Well, I think one of the things you have to do, you know, when you assess anything is you, you take a series of data points and you evaluate them. Right. And right, certain data points tend to have more weight, more influence than others. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting you brought up the, you know, these two directors, like uh, people like, like Kubrick. Well, I was actually thinking you were going to bring up Jim Cameron, who has a reputation of being incredibly difficult to work with, but I think also makes really great stuff, though there are some people who would you know, disagree with that as well uh, when it comes to... I kind of disagree with it. I think he's a good film filmmaker, but a crappy storyteller. That could be. You know, like I was going to say, that there, when, you come, when it comes down to creative works, it's, it's hard to be objective because we're not talking about necessarily an objective topic. You know, there's uh, a saying in Spanish, entre gustos y colores, no, no han escrito los autores, which means between taste and colors, writers colors, should not yeah. have opinions. But but the thing is that in the case of, you know, you take someone like, like, like Kubrick. That's funny, I was just watching a documentary on Kubrick's life, and that's something that his collaborators all confirmed that he was very demanding and he was uh, he could be quite the taskmaster sometimes fairly impatient mm -hmm. uh, and the guy liked what he liked and that was it he wasn't very flexible apparently but yeah like you said though the end result of his vision is something that has a high level of integrity yeah and that's how i feel about leary in, in 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 a certain in a certain sense See, that, that's where I would say that one of the main differences I see between Wilson and Leary is that Wilson, I think, had a very high degree of integrity, intellectual integrity, 
when he presented something, he gave you all the logic, except he didn't call it logic for him. It was maybe logic. And, and but he he made something make sense, and he if he if he was going to postulate something, he could support it real well. Whereas when I saw Leary, he it's it's as if he just didn't know what he was saying. It was as as if his brain and his mouth weren't connected. He just basically well, that would happen sometimes. It ha- it happens to everybody sometimes. It's unfortunate he does that in a public forum. But like I said, you read his autobiography or um, any number of his his writings and. The thought process comes through, maybe not as clearly as with Wilson, hmm. but you know a lot of iconoclasts are not going to tell you their thought process getting to a conclusion. You basically either, you know, you you, you have to be amazed by what they say and then try to try and kind of follow them or follow them back or do your own research into why they may have come to that conclusion, um, and that takes a little bit of work. But if the precipitating idea that got you there, reading what they read or hearing what they said. Is 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 interesting enough? Then you'll pursue it. Um, just, but you know, uh, contrarily, just parroting something somebody says without really thinking about it or looking into it, I think is is ridiculous, and that goes on a lot. Yeah. Let's segue from Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary. Now, before I pick up on another book here, there was something that you, David, had mentioned that maybe we could bring up here. We had this session with Robert Hastings and Don Ecker on the impact of the so-called disinformation agents. And, of course, prominent amongst that list is Richard Doty. Now, I gather, Greg, that you are a little more tolerant of Doty than some are. Would you explain? Okay, we were just talking about uh, your, your, basically, if you want to talk in drug culture, your set and setting, your, your personality, your background. I am interested in why he plays the or did play the games that he did. Um, I suppose I'm a little more clinical in looking at it. I never considered myself his friend. He's not talking to me anymore. He, he decided after Serpo that he didn't want to talk to me anymore. But um, what's interesting to me is listening to him and trying to figure out what he's you know what he's trying to do, if anything with whatever he's telling me. For instance, I interviewed him by email a little bit for the book and then in one like mammoth five-hour interview session. During the interview session, he told me a lot of stuff that matched up with what other people had told me. And and um, I can say anything I want, but, but um, what, what I'm going to tell you now is when I interview people, especially for something like this, I will do my best not to lead them. I will say, you know, what happened that day and not say, you know, what was the guy wearing? What time did he get there? Just, you know, what happened that day and let him spill out and see whatever they want to say. And um, so listening to him over that five hours, he did not allow allow me to uh, tape it. So right after the interview, I sat there and furiously scribbled down. Actually, I had to drive back to Albuquerque and for, for like two hours, I wrote 10 pages of everything I remember he said. For instance, I said, when uh, when you first introduced Falcon to da- to Bill Moore, what was that day like? You know, what was leading up to that? And he, he basically described what when they got there, um, what Falcon was wearing, um, what documents were given to Moore for him to check out, what the deal was, and all this. And I'd spoken to Moore about this probably months before, but. What he said and what came out was basically the same thing Moore told me, down to words that were said, down to what people were wearing, what color the tablecloth was, things like that. And when people say, well, these guys are are lying to you, how can you tell anything that they're saying is true? 
It's like, well, in a lot of cases I can't, but the tools I do have are, you know, 30 years ago or so, they're recalling the exact same thing without me prompting them. That's, you know, that's, that's fairly as reliable as I can get. But then there's other things like um, Hastings had asked, you know, how do you, how do you know about this separate Falcon person? How do you know what was going on? Was it counterintelligence operation? And I said, it's because people outside the uh, intelligence community, namely UFO researchers, people like, and uh, people like Gabe Valdez, other people that knew Benowitz, told me about some of the effects on his life at the time and what he was talking about and what he was doing. And it, you know, in general, all of it matched up, at least the stuff that I put in the book. If there were dead ends or something like that, I wouldn't worry about it. Listening to Doty over the years, to get back to Doty, yeah, a lot of the stuff he he says or and he told me is not checkable, and a lot of it's fairly ridiculous. But there are pieces of it that, if I have a good memory, which I do for some things, especially dealing with the UFO subject and the government uh, interaction, somebody will have told me, you know, months or years ago, and then Doty will suddenly mention it, and I'll say, okay, this this has come from two people, and uh, supposedly one from a big liar. But he doesn't lie about everything. It just takes a lot of work, patience, and interest in the subject to, to listen to what he has to say. And uh, that for that reason, and you know, I've got a personal bias, I like you know, spy stuff and how it relates to UFO things. So it's interesting to me to hear this, what he says and what Robert Collins says. No, I don't have to accept it all, and I don't, I don't come on and defend them because there isn't any really real way to defend them. But it's valuable for me personally. Do, do I make sense here? I'll oh, tell you what, before we say whether you make sense or not. Business travel is a profitability killer. You know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Greg Bishop is trying to make sense <laughs> on the Paracast, and now David Biedney will set him straight, right, sir? No, I, I, I'm just wondering, then, when you cut all the BS away with, with these guys, let's just pick Doty here. Mm-hmm. When you cut the noise away, what signal do you have left? What does he... Let's cut right to it, Greg. So what does this guy offer in terms of information that is in any way useful in trying to understand the UFO phenomenon? What does he offer of value? He offers nothing in any way that helps us understand the UFO phenomenon. What he offers, at least to me, is a way that some people in counterintelligence, that little part of the government, deal with the subject, what they think of it, why they're interested in it, how they interact with UFO researchers and um, 
that drama, that human drama, that interests me just as much as any so-called answer to the UFO question. That's why I continue to listen to these people. It may not interest other people, and you know, and that's fine. But I don't really get emotional about too many things, and um, this certainly isn't one of them. Um, somebody asked me the other day, "Well, what about all the you know, what about all the junk they put out? Doesn't that make ufology look bad? Doesn't that leave pe lead people down a you know down the wrong paths?" I said, "Of course it does." But so does about 90% of ufology. So what difference does it make? If you want to find um, good information, use your intelligence, use your critical thinking, and find out the answer for yourself. Um, right. that's, if you that's, think that's somebody's full of crap, then fine, they're full of crap. Go find somebody that isn't. In fact, I suggested to people that they go to the Paracast Forum if they didn't know anything about it, any of a number of forums, but specifically the Paracast Forum, and read what people say. There's some good suggestions, and uh, in that way you can find out, ask other people's opinions. All right. So in looking at what Dodie's done, what does that teach you specifically about the way the government handles the topic? It tells me that in his case, and a few others too, that there are people in the government that know that the government is interested in the UFO subject and that there may be some answers, and because of their position, they're trying to find out these answers. Some of them don't really care what civilian or you know people on the outside think or they find out. They want to find out for themselves. So listening to them once in a while, you might get a little hint, possibly, of what the government knows. And, and you know, for me, I think the government doesn't know much more than we do. Um, the only thing that's important, I guess, to get out of a, a government entity or person in the government is that it is an important subject. They know that it's, you know, that it's uh, a matter of national security, as, as uh, Robert Hastings has said with his UFO and nukes thing. And, you know, that's the important part. And the fact that these people like uh, Doty and Collins and John Alexander and Hal Putoff and Kit Green and all these people are still talking to some UFO researchers and sort of keep their fingers in the pot means to me that they're not working for the government. They're working for themselves and trying to find answers. They just think they're in a different position to do so, and they might have a slightly better chance than other people. I'm not so sure of that. Well, do you think, for example, that Doty and Collins, and I put those two together since they seem to work together, although one might claim that he hates the other from time to time, do you think they've been doing a lot of this stuff under the direction of the government, or are they just loose cannons, or both? Uh, I think both, and I think I don't think either of them are doing any government stuff, except um, perhaps, not perhaps, almost certainly uh, Doty with the Serpo stuff, which I think had nothing whatsoever to do with UFOs and had everything to do with exactly what was going on during the Benowitz thing, which was to make a noise and see who comes running. So for some of us, I, I hear that, and I, I still don't quite understand what you're talking about. So what, I, I'm, about I'm making a noise and see who comes running? Is that what you don't understand? Yeah, basically. In, in the context of this discussion, uh, let's say for a moment, let's just, just, let's, let's just set a model here and play it out. All right. All right. So I, th I think it was a couple of Paracasts ago when we had on ha uh, Hastings and uh, Don Ecker. Right. Towards the end of the episode, I basically went on record saying, look, certainly if you look at the evidence of the way that the government has played around with this topic, has played these games and their games, and, it's, and, and clearly the government has employed some people over time to play this game, 
if we make that assumption for a moment, then we ask, you know, why are they doing this? What is the, the, the overall purpose of this? And one of the things I said on, uh, in that rap was there's a very good likelihood that ultimately, even though there might be in the possession of some people inside of the military, some, some covert groups inside the military, they may have, let's say, some retrieved crash stuff. Maybe even some bodies. Let's make for believe for a moment that indeed they have some of those things. Mm-hmm. It was my postulation that I had a very, very strong suspicion that the government doesn't really know a lot about what they've got. And the whole game is that they can't allow that lack of knowledge to become public. That basically, for, for them, that is the worst thing that could happen to them. Which How did you come up with that uh, that uh, assessment? Because I've been saying that for many years. And Greg, I didn't read it in something you wrote and and parroted. It. it seems to me like it's fairly obvious. No, me, I'm giving you I'm giving you credit for being intelligent. That's all. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get some bad emails about that. Um, but 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 here's I'm the writing thing. one right now. Excuse me. Well, but <laughs> if you look at the if you look at what's actually gone down, if you look at the the way that they just totally deny this stuff. To me, that total, not just coming out and, and saying, okay, there's something in our skies, we don't know what it is, which I think is like the only real honest answer. Right. This goes against, in the case of, let's say, the military. The whole issue, of, you know, the, 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 the goal of the military is to maintain an, an aura of security around this country and the people inside of it, to, to give them a perception, maybe even some amount of reality of being secure. And... To make a confession along the lines of, you know, we don't understand what this is. We don't. We have no idea where where they they it comes from. What we do know is that they can completely outmaneuver us uh, in the air. There's no way we can actually exert any level of control over these things. And so basically, they're free to do what they want. And all we can do is hope that they don't make a you know a civilian airliner go down, right? And that that is obviously that should be an area of of concern. And it certainly is an area of concern for groups like NARCAP. Yeah, um, that's their entire focus. So that said, otherwise to come out and make an admission that they don't know what's going on is basically to take a position of supreme insecurity, and they can't do that. They can't do that because it goes against their mission statement. Right. Exactly. If you're in a position of power and you have to admit to people that you don't know what's going on is something you can't control, why would you do that? You just it, wouldn't. It would completely undermine, you know, your your position of authority and cause other problems, maybe social problems. I mean, I guess I start to sound like Stan Friedman here, but what if you come out and say, we're not at the top of the food chain, although we don't know what is? You can't do that. No, there's just no way. What they're hiding, like you said, is ignorance. And um, I always bring up that John Keel quote that he, in 1960 sometime, one of his books, his, um, in one, uh, deep buried in one of his books was the statement that the, U- the UFO research community is not telling the government what it knows about UFOs. And that's very funny, but it's also kind of true. Hmm. I think that's what the the um, interest in the UFO groups is: one, to find out what they what they know about any kind of secret projects that may be going on, because that's very important; and two, to find out stuff that they don't know because they don't have the wherewithal and the manpower and all that devoted to studying the subject and trying to figure out what it is. So, government actually potentially turning to the civilians for some insights. That's yeah, I, that, it, it, it makes sense to me. I mean, if you don't know and there's somebody that does, then, you know, why not 
why not avail yourself of that that resource, even though it has to be sub rosa? Because then, you know, it's like, why would the military go to some dork sitting in his basement, essentially? That's what people think of UFO researchers. Of course, remember back in the 50s and 60s, NICAP had a heavy percentage of ex-military personnel on their roster as members, as board members. So was that it? Were they depending on NICAP maybe at that particular point in time to get information? Yeah, maybe so. And like I said, the the other part of this is, and I've written about this too, why do all those aviary people keep popping up later in, in, in uh, what's his name, Ralph Blum's book uh, out there? Yeah, I think it's Ralph Blum out there. And why do they pop up later in the Society for Scientific Exploration, an organization of which I am a member, actually? Why do they keep popping up? Because they're still looking for answers, and they didn't get them when they were in the government that knows everything. Mm. You know, why would they keep looking? They're not here to screw with UFO researchers and make things muddy the waters and all that. I, I don't think that's their main reason for doing all this stuff and interacting with civilian UFO people. It's because they're looking for answers. And perhaps a, you know, and I have talked with some of these people that are supposedly mem mem were members of the quote unquote aviary. And, you know, while not telling me directly, they're basically, like I said, they're still looking for answers. Why would Hal Putoff co-author a paper called Inflation Theory Implications for Extraterrestrial Visitation, which is basically um, using uh, theoretical physics, the newest theoretical physics, to say, oh, there, there could be ETs coming here from some other galaxy and not have to worry about traveling. Anyway, he's still looking for answers. You know, John Alexander is still looking for answers. Kit Green is still looking for answers. Um, you know, Collins and Doty as well. And they keep that, I think they keep that line open to the UFO community because there are some people providing them information to answer their own personal quest about what this other, this non-human intelligence may be. And combined with their, you know, their connections or former connections to uh, the government and people who may know things in certain intelligence agencies, they're working the problem too. However, if, if they find out what it is to their satisfaction, I don't think any of us are going to hear about it. Mm. You know, that's the problem with it, because they're they're going to be secretive. That's always interesting. Yeah, and like I said, you know, the, why do you listen to Doty and all these people? It's like, because that part of the story is interesting to me. And if I keep listening to them, once in a while, they'll be, you know, they, you think all these people are evil and horrible and all that. And I'm not, you know, and I'm including everybody, not not just Doty and Collins. And in fact, Doty and Collins might be, the you know, the least information rich of the people I've talked to for this, uh, for finding out what's going on. But... Every once in a while, and I'll give one example, I talked to a guy that used to work at Air Force Weapons Lab when I was working, and he told me not to use his name because he doesn't want to be bothered, and that's fine, um, which causes all kinds of problems now when people go, oh, it's an anonymous source. But I'm going to use this example. I asked him when I first saw him, um, what were they so bothered about with Benowitz? What was the big deal about keeping him in the dark and stringing him along and all that? What was going on on the base? Was it UFOs? Was it what? And uh, we're sitting in the classic spook place in a restaurant right next to the Air Force Base and in a whole section of the restaurant where nobody was sitting at the corner table. If you go talk to any of these people, that's what they always do. I don't know if they know the people at the restaurant or what. It's because they don't want to be surprised and they want to, want to make sure there's nobody listening. But the, the weird thing was, he said, oh, there was a lot of things going on at the base. You know, I, I'm not exactly sure what, what they were worried about. And I knew he knew exactly what was going on because he was not a low-level guy. He, he knew what was going on, and they let him on the base when I was with him. He just flashed his ID, and they let us right in. But then, like, a week later, 
when we're driving on the base, he starts pointing things out to me. He said, hey, look at that. You know, can you see that over there? And I said, yeah, that's a Starfire um, laser facility. Yeah, there was an interesting guy named, and I can't remember what the name of it, 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 it was a laser physicist, and it wasn't put off working on something. He just started describing the project to me. And I realized what he was doing at that point was giving me a little bit of a hint about my question I'd asked him a week before. Huh. Yeah. And that's why I say in the posting at uh, Paracast, which you, uh, at the forum, which you probably saw, um, the point is you have to listen to them, you have to ask the right questions, um, problem, sometimes wait days, weeks, months, or years for an answer, and listen very, very, very carefully. Because if they want to help you, they will, but not in a direct way. It's, I've had that happen more than once, and there's these little revelations that pop up. Moore has done it to me, too. I'm not going to tell you exactly, but I'm going to help you get to the answer yourself. What a game. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. This is not yeah. a game. This is Greg Bishop joining us. And that would be interesting, too, to look at the motives here. Why put you through these mind games? Because that's the only way they know how to do these things. And that's how they've been trained, and that's their mindset. And like uh, Moore said, and I you know, bring up his name, people are going to go, oh, man. But what he said is, if you want to find something out, um, and it may be a total load of crap. You know, you don't know that going into it. If you want to find something out, you have to play the game. And it's not your game, it's their game. And you have to play by their rules. However, once in a while, you know, you get to advance two spaces, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, you have to be okay with the fact that you might be advancing down spaces that make that are completely worthless. Yeah, well, at that point, the, the house always wins, and, and if it's a game and it's a winner and, and a loser, and the house always wins, then doesn't it then make sense to... The house always, yeah, the house always wins, but incrementally I'm winning here and there, and it may come years apart. Winning mean, I'm, meaning I'm getting information that's good for me, and that may help me later, and it may be in an indirect way, and, it, and, it's, and it, it's already happened. I mean, that's how I found out uh, Falcon's name. Of course, he denies that, you know. Who? Falcon and Condor both deny that they are Falcon and Condor. Falcon is dead. Who was Falcon? Falcon was a... People are going to get mad now. Falcon was a... <laughs> 
old-time OSS person who had gone into the CIA and worked counterintelligence in Europe and other places, um, partially after World War II, working with Reinhard Galen and people like that. And he had been brought out of retirement to work something against the Soviets in the, in the late 70s and uh, early 80s. And that was, you know, that was a really small part of, I mean, well... I was thinking of somebody else as being Falcon, but go ahead. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, we can discuss that, too. People say Doty is Falcon, and I think the evidence for it is really, really, really shoddy. But uh, to my mind, Falcon was another person, and in fact, the other aviary people I've talked to know he was another person, and they're being very coy with me about uh, admitting to who that is, because I won't give them the name. I'm trying to use other ways to, to get them to, to uh, tell me who the Falcon person, you know, who this Falcon person was. And I don't want to give them a name because then that means they don't have to deal with me anymore, you see. Right. But now here, let, let me just ask a question, though, and I'm sure some of the listeners are thinking this. All right. So let's forget about these people for a moment. The stuff that came out of these people. Mm -hmm. right? There was the infamous TV show, The Name Which Evades Me. UFO cover-up live, exclamation point. There you go. Yeah, with, it's the guy from MASH, right? BJ. Mike Farrell, October 1988. Man, all right. So, let's forget about the people involved. Mm -hmm. What do you feel might have been any of the real information? Was there any real revelation in that stuff, or is it all just bunk? I think it's all just bunk. Except for, you know, they had a bunch of witnesses on, like Betty Cash and Vicky Landrum and some other people. But the stuff with Falcon and Condor in in, uh, in silhouette and all that, I think that 99.9% .9 of that was all bunk. The stuff that wasn't bunk is, yes, the government knows there's something here and they're concerned about it. <laughs> all right. So, And then the, the idea being that potentially you could take all the rest of it and sort of shelve it, just put it aside. Because if it's a, an exercise of separating signal from noise, I think a lot of the the, the task is just to identify the noise Mm -hmm. And put it aside. Just put it aside because it's of no use. Unless, yes. like you're saying, unless you want to understand how the chain of disinformation supply works, then it's of interest. But if you're actually trying to understand what the heck is going on, that you know, with the UFO topic in terms of itself, then this stuff is basically noise, and it's time to set it aside. Yes. Right? Do not look to the government ever for an answer on UFOs. It's not going to come. However, like I said, my bias is I'm just interested in that game. It's just interesting to me. I don't pretend that it's, it's that I'm going to get to the bottom of anything and have an answer for everybody about the UFO question. I'm I don't I'm not going to do that by talking to government people. I and I know that. That's fine. Right. Okay. I can have more than one interest. <laughs> anybody can. Well, you have sure. to avoid being caught up in their crap. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing is I don't really, uh, mainly because of Wilson, I think, and, and my, my father and the way I was brought up and the education I got, I won't allow myself to be locked into any one thing and any one belief system because it's, I, I have this feeling that doing that automatically closes you off to so many possibilities. And possibilities are exciting. Locking yourself into a belief system is the least exciting, one of the least exciting things I can think of. Well, there, there's security in it, but it certainly doesn't allow you to do any real growth, I suspect. That's right, and that's what I'd like to do. I mean, why be a wuss? You, you only go around once. Get as much as you can in. Get as much experience as you can. Learn as much as you can. Last night I was standing there in line waiting to go see Up, which was good. I liked that movie. Ah. Um, 
And there was a guy there, and he's. I, st- I talked about myself a little bit, and then he said, oh, well, I'm pretty much a science weenie. I work at JPL. Oh, really? So I realized I can let him talk, and I'm going to learn a lot more than if he just listens to me. So I let him talk. And we had a very nice conversation for an hour. And then I told him I was into the UFO thing, and he said, oh, you're one of those woo-woo people. No, not really. I mean, I don't have an agreement either with a, a fundamentalist skeptic that says there's nothing to it, or a UFO believer that says aliens are coming from another planet, and et cetera, et cetera. But he asked me why I even talked to him if he was such a science person. I said, because I can learn more from you than you can learn from me, and that's valuable to me. You encounter somebody, and what's the first thing you do? Can I learn something from them, or is it more valuable to them for me to talk talk their ear off? You know, And then there's a whole bunch of stuff in between. I, I just didn't like interacting with people, especially some people I can learn something from. Even it has nothing to do with UFOs, which okay. is why I have so many interests and you know why I'm interested in Doty and Collins and all this. But also in, you know, what does this UFO thing mean? Where does it come from? How does it make sense to us? How do we make sense of it? Et cetera, et cetera. As we focus on this particular portion of the show, what do you think in the end we can take away from this? How extensive is the government involved in UFO disinformation today? I think almost not at all because there's no, there's, there's no upside to it. The reason they're not involved right now is because it's with the, with the uh, Internet in the last 10 years getting more and more and more important. You don't need to follow anybody or try to find out what they're thinking. They're typing it online. You don't need to keep track of anybody. They, they, they make it very easy for you to keep track of them without having to hire secret agents and pass disinformation and all this other stuff. All they have to do is look at what you're writing online and what you're, you know, the NSA can, can follow anybody based on emails and things they're saying in the phone conversations and all that. So there's no real worry there. In the 1980s and all that, when Benowitz was going on and the MJ-12 documents came out and all that, you had to get you know, you had to meet people. You had to have human intelligence. Now it's now it's probably a lot more signals intelligence, which is what I've just been describing. Yeah, but that's the taking the assumption that there's a useful amount of information exclusively online. I would argue that any real in, intel group is going to be as interested in meat space as it is in cyberspace. More so, really. Why? Um, well, because cyberspace is only a tiny portion of what is. And certainly in terms of people's activities, it's a very small fragment of who they are. It's not the totality of who they are. And and this is one of the, the issues that I see in, in terms of the drawbacks of the Internet is that people have come to think that the Internet is the repository of human knowledge. Just recently at a friend's party with his incredibly intelligent 15-year-old son, I had this discussion where the, the kid said to me, if it's not on, on Wikipedia... It's irrelevant. And I said to him, are you serious? Do you really believe that? And and he did. He's part of this generation that thinks that if, it's, if it isn't codified on the web, then it, it can't have been of enough interest to even be relevant to understanding the nature of reality. And I think that given the, the age of the Internet, given the reality of what the Internet is... It's a very dangerous assumption to make, I think. Certainly, I'm not making that assumption, though. I'm not saying you're making that assumption. I'm okay. saying that... I'm saying that people make that assumption, right? and what I'm saying with regards to your statement, Greg, is the idea that the government can keep track of, let's say, someone's participation in a field based on what they type on the Internet, I, I don't think that's realistic. I think if you were, let's say, if you were really interested in finding out what was going on with someone, anyone, if you're the military and you have an interest in an individual, you're going to certainly deploy more than just tracking them, you know, tracking their, their, their IP usage 
and seeing what packets come out of their computer. I think that's just a very small piece of the puzzle of, of who they are. If what you're really trying to do is control, have some degree of control over what someone is doing and sort of anticipating where they're going to go. I don't think they're interested in anticipating where anybody's going to go or what their meat space activities are. What they're interested is in people's beliefs and what they're saying to each other. And a lot of that goes on online. I'm not talking about learning about the UFO subject or what what the what MUFON is doing or anything like that. I'm talking about individuals talking to each other like, I went out to so-and-so and saw this thing flying over whatever. What do you think of that? They're going to either talk on the phone or email each other, and that's very easy to track, and that's what they're interested in. I don't think they really care what people are doing. All they care about is what people know and what they're thinking, I think. Hmm. And people are very open with that on the Internet. And every, you know, and of course, no, it's not the whole totality of what somebody's doing. But what you're interested in is information, not somebody's habits or anything like that. However, if you figure out from their information that they're doing something questionable, yeah, you might send somebody out there to take a look at them and take a little bit more interest. But the, the point of all the disinformation and all that was not to, and this is another thing I have an argument with a lot of people that are researchers, they've got this idea, it seems like that there's an evil government that's trying to thwart the UFO community and keep them from finding things out about the UFO subject because they want to keep people in the dark. But yeah, I don't think that. The only other explanation that makes sense to me, or a couple of them, is what we were just talking about. Can I learn something about this, the UFO subject from researchers that I can't learn from my contacts? And two, how does, and if you're an active military and you're in counterintelligence, is it impinging upon anything that we don't want um, foreign nationals knowing about? Well, before we even get into that, we're just about running out of hour number one. But it would be remiss in my duty as co-host of this venture not to ask, where can folks find out more about the things that you do, Greg Bishop? Well, probably the main place, which is updated the most, is ufomystic.com, the, the uh, blog that I do with uh, Nick Redfern. If you want to read about some of the stuff that we were talking about, Benowitz and all that, um, Project Beta. Uh, book I wrote that came out in 2005 that's still available on Amazon um, my old magazine Excluded Middle which we published from 1992 till about 99 is available, a lot of it is available at uh, excludedmiddle.com and collected in a book much more completely called Wake Up Down There um, which was published in 2000, in 2000. and then I wrote a book called uh, about 70% of a book called Weird California which is an examination of strange places, people, and history of California, which was published in 2006. I love those weird books. They're great. In yeah, they're, like, yeah, they're nice books, too. They're like 20 bucks for this, you know, hardcover, 200-something page, you know, every color, every page in color um, uh, coffee table book. In part two, we'll explore not just coffee table books, but more about what UFOs might be and maybe are not on the PowerCast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries. To him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, 
The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. Now equipped with a big, fresh, cold bottle of Moxie, or whatever they call it. Moxie. Yeah, it kicks ass. It's great. Great drink. Moxie. It's got Moxie. Okay. Equipped with this Moxie because he's ready to deal with us for part two. <laughs> now, we've been focusing, of course so far on the disinformation people, and also about belief systems. You know, we've never had Greg on one-on-one on the show. Right. So let's find out what drives this man. You know, one of the things we, we normally ask guests, Greg, is yeah. how they got involved in this stuff. Uh, and that's how we do that instead of a preamble discussing someone's background and listing off their specs. Yeah, if so, I never had anybody on my show, that's the first thing I do. What you got interested in this, John? Yeah, I mean, well, what's the deal? Why? Why? Why this stuff? I don't know. I really don't. Okay, that ends that discussion. What's the next topic? Yeah. I'll, now, I'll tell you what, what happened, though, and I don't know why. When I was uh, very little, my father would take my sister and I to the library every week, and he'd say, okay, get two or three books, and we'll, you read them, we'll bring them, bring them back next week, and you get some more. He got us hooked on reading that way. But the thing is, I went to the paranormal and UFO section, which is 001 in the library. Maybe it's the first books I encountered. So from like the age of five or six or so, I started reading UFO and paranormal books, and I read every UFO and paranormal book in one library. Then we went to another library, and I found the books that weren't at the first one and read those too, till about the age of 10 or 12. And then I didn't care about, you know, I suddenly got a little bit older and girls looked interesting and I could drive and um, take drugs and all that, you know, and went through college. And then about two years after college, um, I suddenly got interested in it again. And I don't know why. So well, that's, that's why I'm interested. <laughs> what, what college did you go? What did you get a degree in? Here's a good one. A ufology degree um, you can't get. I got an art history degree. <laughs> about as useful. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. From um, from USC, which is not known for its art history program. <laughs> oh boy! But it allowed me to move to LA, and I got involved in the entertainment industry. And you know, I'm still, although in the last couple months, no, but still working in in post production. So that's what an art art history degree gets you. It gets you um, a job in post production, audio mixing, and restoration. Hmm. But <laughs> so, one thing that seems to crop up in a a lot of people's backgrounds are paranormal experiences when they were young. Do you have any of those? No, I don't. Although, you know, I've interviewed people, and um, I remember specifically Carla Turner. I interviewed her, and she said, why are you interested in this? And I said, I don't know. And I told her what had happened in the books and also some, you know, the night before I interviewed her, I woke up at 111, 222, 333, 444, which is a classic abduction type effect and she goes well maybe maybe somebody should hypnotize you and i said nope <laughs> i don't want any ufo researchers hypnotized anywhere around me hypnotizing me i will not allow it people used to write to the magazine and say i've had these weird experiences what do you think i should do and i said go to a mental health professional that you trust do not go to a ufo researcher 
Because if you go to a UFO researcher, invariably they're going to say that you were abducted by somebody, no matter how much they protest and say that they don't lead witnesses. I've heard tapes of them doing hypnotic regressions, and they lead people like mad, a lot of them. So what are your feelings then about the abduction scenario? Do you oh, think now I had to bring it up. You did? Yeah. I, well, I feel that in a lot of cases people had contact with something that is not coming out of their minds. Maybe not a lot, but a, 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 you know, a significant enough amount of the time. This is just my feeling. Um, because it's been happening for thousands of years. People have had contact with things they say are outside of them. And in a lot of cases, um, people get information they had no way of knowing, really. So I think that some people do have the ability to interact with something that is not them. Whether it's physical or not, I do not know. And that in some cases it involves um, some sort of communication and um, what people think might be some sort of medical examination or whatever. But the, the field is so contaminated by that scenario right now but that um, I don't think we're going to find out really anything about it in the next you know, 20, 30 years until something changes. Um, it'd like be, what? It'd be what? Um, having it stop for a while would be good. Or somebody doing research and specifically, and you know, people get mad at me. I, I think I think um, subjective UFO research is just as valuable as objective. Put some other kind of idea on it and see if that one holds up. I bet it would. So you want to do you know what I mean? Because I think it's so open to interpretation. Because whatever it is, the phenomenon, whatever it is, either one doesn't want us to know what it's doing exactly so we get a show or two like i said your brain stuffs everything into a box and that becomes what it is in quotes so if we look at the body of research surrounding the abduction phenomenon mm -hmm. right and you look at people the obvious players and we don't need to name them because i think at this point people have a pretty good handle on who those people are who are looking into that scenario do you then assume that the mapping of real experiences versus perceived experiences sort of mirrors what we see in terms of the number of objects that people see that they assume are UFOs versus what ultimately end up being truly unidentified flying objects? Do you think it's like a 2% to 5% of people who claim to have an abduction experience are actually having some kind of truly unknown, unknown experience? And I realize I'm asking you to kind of quantify things but you know we have to start somewhere right yeah so what would be the percentage breakdown if you had a guess which obviously is what everything is in this topic is, is a guess i haven't paid too much attention to it recently because it's just hasn't changed however um i don't know i figure it would be a lot lower than most people would think and I don't know what to put a no I don't know what number to put on it. Two percent, ten percent, certainly no higher than twenty, twenty-five. I don't know though. I can't be pinned down to those things because the 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 subject is so polluted with pre, with preconceptions, and the human mind and the subconscious, I think, are still still kind of uncharted territory. Lots of it. Um, Mario Pozzoglini, one of my great influences, who is, has passed away, he was a, kind of an abduction researcher, but he was mostly interested in, in channeled and uh, received messages, writing. But his quote, I remember, which I keep bringing up is, um, and he was a psychologist. He was, he was a licensed psychologist. 
um, and he did not regress people or anything like that. That was not his concern. What he said was, I've read a lot of these books. I've talked to these people, uh, the, the abduction researchers, and I've listened to tapes and seen videos of them doing their abduct, abduction, their hypnosis, their regressions. He said, it, what seems to me is a lot of these people have little understanding or respect for the subconscious. And that's something that I carry around with me, that quote. Actually, that brings in the other element, of course, is that the subconscious impact on what we see and the impact on what we see that's unusual and then may be because of our preconditioning, whatever, we reinterpret in a way that we understand, which is also yeah. a part and parcel of some of the stranger aspects of the UFO enigma. Yeah, we, we, we put it in the box that makes us feel best. When I say feel best, meaning the one that makes sense to us at the time that we can live with. Well, for example, that person we had on last week who put them into his specific religious soapbox. Okay, so it all fit there. And he was saying over and over during the interview, at least he was honest about it, saying, this is what I believe. Fine, cool. Right. It may be ridiculous from a logical standpoint, but okay, you are entitled to your beliefs. The problem being then, if we're so colored by our belief systems, how do we get to the bottom of this? I don't know. By keeping an open mind, that's about the only sword you have in this in this dark forest. Keeping an open and critical mind and um, being interested enough to pursue things that you may not agree with. A lot. Of, I've got friends that accuse me of being too skeptical. That's a good thing to be accused of. Because because once in a while I'll quote stuff off the Psychop website because I think they have a point. You know, once every once every you know, century. You know, so. <laughs> Why not read what somebody's saying? Why not, you know, uh, check out something that you don't agree with? Because if you find something that you don't agree with, that seems to make sense. You're going to have to reevaluate your your opinion. I had that happen with the Dulcie bass thing. I thought it was total junk and crap, and then a couple people I knew that whose judgment I trust said that they're not so sure and they think there was some sort of underground facility there. Not to say it had aliens in it and big firefights and seven levels and blah blah blah. But that there may have been something there, so I've got, I've got to reevaluate my my opinion that there there wasn't anything there and it was total disinformation, and I, I'm willing to do that. That's fine by me. It doesn't scare me. I might maybe I was you know I was wrong. Oh no. <laughs> but, well, no, and and you're making a really good point. There was a recent discussion on the Paracast forums where there, there was a listener that said they had listened to our roundtable panel that we did with some listeners recently, and that the minute they heard. The term psychic come up, that's it, they disconnected. And uh, I found that to be a little unfortunate in that I would hope that at this point people realize that, yeah, human beings seem to have abilities that we do not understand, we don't have any handle on, but that from time to time manifest themselves. And they yeah. would definitely, I think, fall into the category of being psychic. Um, well, and see, we're trapped by our language our perceived rules of, of uh, intellectual discourse, etc. And I, I refuse to be trapped by those things, but I also refuse to be trapped by, you know, um, stupidity and fixed belief systems. I want to come back to your reading list, Greg, because there was someone you brought up that I've been very curious about, and I admit that I haven't, I've been meaning to read for years, The Conscious Universe. Tell us a little bit about that book and the fellow who wrote it. Well, um, I read the last time I read it was when it came out, which was like 95 or so, 96. 
And that was by Dean Radin, who's a, um, a credentialed uh, scientific researcher. However, um, when I interviewed him, he was, uh, and he does work in parapsychology and in, in studying not really ESP, but mind over matter type of uh, phenomena. And when I interviewed him, he was working at the University of Las Vegas, which doesn't particularly care about psychic phenomena. However, he was tenured there and they didn't, you know, they didn't really, they couldn't really say anything about what he was doing. Although they, you know, they gave him pressure to not publicize his stuff because they didn't want to make UNLV look ridiculous. The uh, hotel management school. The, the reason I started the magazine, part of the reason was very selfish, and I'm sure that's why you do the, do the show, is because I was looking for answers and I thought, hey, if I've got this vehicle, I can go directly to somebody that I've, I've uh, heard about, read their book or whatever, and ask them questions on a one-on-one uh, basis, which is great. I love this. So I, I called him and I said, would you like to do an interview for my magazine? Which was a zine with a print run of about 5,000, hardly anybody, you know, in, in the world of magazines, not that big a deal. But surprise, surprise, he said, yes, sure, come on out and I'll talk to you. And um, I met him at a cafe and I took a little tape recorder, and, you know, mini cassette recorder and uh, a bunch of tapes. He talked to me for five hours. <laughs> and when I listened back to the tape, the reason I, I, I think he was talking to me for that long was because if I didn't get something, he would explain it over and over until I got it, which I thought was so nice of him. Like, why take the time to get these con- these very difficult concepts using um, our inexact language into my head? It's because he thought it was important to, even in a small way, get his message out. And his message is that there is experimental evidence for mind-over-matter effects and it is worth a, worth our while as uh, questioning and 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 um, exploring creatures to look into it and not let a preconception like well we don't have a we don't have a theory as to why this works so it doesn't exist get in the way and what most of his work involves is using random number generators which are basically electronic devices that do electronic coin flips. They, they generate zeros and ones randomly. And if you leave them alone over a period of, you know, an hour or a couple days or even a few minutes, these electronic virtual coin flips come out to 50-50 like it would happen if you were tossing a perfect, perfect coin. Mm-hmm. So what he, what he does with these random number generators is put people near them and tell them to try to affect them one way or the other. And according to his, by some kind of mental influence, according to his research, and he's perfectly willing to admit when there's there's not a result, some of the results point to the uh, idea that there is some sort of influence on these, on these uh, random events that cannot be ascribed to something wrong with the machine or anything like that. They're calibrated properly and all this. What he's doing now is he's got a series of about, I don't know, 50 or 100 random number generators all over the world. And when something important and world-changing or uh, shocking to a great amount of people happens, they go and look and see what's happening with the random number generators. And they have found, in certain instances, like Princess Diana being uh, killed or her um, funeral or you know September 11th attacks, that there's a significant enough, statistically significant effect on these random number generators all over the world, which seems to indicate that... Um, the physical world can be affected by our thoughts and emotions and feelings. 
Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, Separating Signal from Noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hi, this is Brad Steiger, and I'm in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Vietnam. Join us as we explore new dimensions of thought. We're talking to Greg Bishop about thoughts, emotions, and feelings. Now, this happens <laughs> after the fact or far enough before the fact that you can say something really major is going to happen. That's another part of his research is uh, precognition. And what it is is people are hooked up to basically what is a lie detector that measures um, you know, skin tongue conductivity and breathing and all that. And they will be shown pictures of um, on a computer, just random pictures. And some of them are, you know, pictures of houses or dogs or whatever. Then there'll be a picture of a car accident with somebody's, you know, guts hanging out. Just a very emotionally laden picture. And what he found out in a lot of these experiments was that people would react to the pictures a split second before they came up. Hmm. Um, and in some of the random number generating things I was talking about, um, there is a definite effect. Certainly after the um, uh, event, and I believe in some cases slightly before it, um, which tends to indicate that time is not what we think it is and that um, we have some way somewhere, some of us anyway, in unhooking from a time stream and a causality stream, meaning, you know, in fact comes after cause. Sometimes you can anticipate uh, a precipitating cause. But the the um, am I making sense? Absolutely, sure. He gave me one example, and it was in his book. He said, "What if you could hook somehow hook up everybody on an airplane to something that monitored their their breathing and their sweat glands and all this other stuff somehow? Who knows? And um, get some kind of a split second warning before something was going to happen." Could it happen, you know, early enough so that the thing wouldn't happen and they could keep from having the plane go down or whatever? And I said, well, that's there's that grandfather Fermi paradox thing where if you <laughs> if you're going to react to something, if it doesn't happen, what were you reacting to? Right. He said that makes sense. But if you if you think of, of time and causality as one rail going from, you know, flowing from future to past, yeah, that doesn't work. But what if you think of it as like an infinite number of rails and in your life, in your existence, you're continue and all of us, we're continually jumping from one rail to the other. So instead of going on the rail where the plane hit something and went down, it jumps off that one because of whatever the pilot did or an automatic thing, steers the plane away from that. You immediately jump onto the, the uh, possible future where nothing happened and you're fine. Well, that's multiple realities almost then. Yeah. That's the thing he pounded into my mind was that, you know, consider the possibility that everything that has ever happened and is going to happen 
is accessible somehow by the human mind in every possibility that it's just it's it all it always exists you know in another in another reality you became you know Brad Pitt or something but in this reality we're sitting here talking on 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 this enjoyable show so that's how I kind of tend to look at things right now is that the time is an illusion um, and then we're forced into it because we're physically you know we're physically incarnate if that if uh, that makes sense well yeah basically we're we're functioning in the framework of our our observable physical reality, but that at the same time there's this slightly less deterministic set of events or mechanisms happening underneath that make that that introduce this idea of entropy, and that you know when you, when you start to talk about this, the reason I, I, I want to specifically ask you about this was that I've attempted to read a few different books about this idea that the universe ends up somehow being a, a projection of humans. That, you know, this, the, the whole idea, I guess it goes back to that quintessential saying, you know, there's no one in the, if a tree falls yeah. before, <laughs> there's not, they hear it, did it make noise? At which point the physicist in me says, well, if sound waves were generated, if air was displaced, you better believe it made noise. Uh, whether or not there was anybody there to, to hear it, it is irrelevant from the idea that the noise happened. So at least that's my belief system. <laughs> it's, I'll definitely qualify yeah. it as a belief system. But, yeah. Well, then, then it's you know, if we didn't, if nobody was there to see it, then it then it's irrelevant. And if it's irrelevant, then it didn't happen. You know, in, in no, a, in no a, I, I disagree with that. But but that to, to me that me that puts humans at the center of the universe. And I thought we outgrew that stuff a few hundred years ago. Maybe not. Right. Maybe we still. Well, think it's not a philosophical thing. idea. It's more more like you know what. It, 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 I guess it's more like Wilson's idea that you know it's it, what you perceive is is the reality. Not that you know if you don't perceive it, then it doesn't it, it doesn't affect you or everybody else or whatever. It doesn't matter really, and it, essentially it doesn't exist. Well, but um, I, I, and I, it's I, not a philosophical thing where we're the center of things. It's just it's it's a, a matter of perspective. To which I respond. It seems to me that there are certain things that even if we don't perceive them are going to have a huge effect on our reality. And certainly, uh, if one thinks about a metaverse, I think that supports the idea that, for example, something that happens in another dimensional construct could very, very easily, I think, reverberate into ours and perhaps create effects in ours that we don't directly perceive the sourcing of because we don't have the ability of looking into another dimensional framework. We don't have the instrumentation nor the mental ability to do it, yet whatever is happening over there is having perhaps a direct effect on us, but best because we don't see the source of it means that it's somehow not of importance to us. I mean, I... I yeah, but it's I, affected us, so it does have an importance, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but, but as <laughs> I said, just because you don't see the thing affecting you... Well, okay, let me, let me give you another example, all right? People talk about quantum physics, right? And they throw that term out, and they talk about quantum mechanics. And as you identified in that reading list of yours, Greg, I mean, you basically say to people, stop saying, well, what about quantum physics without really knowing what it represents? Right. And I totally, absolutely agree with that, because you know, people seem to have taken this idea of matter basically behaves a certain way up until... When you observe it, when you observe it, its behavior changes. And then they sort of take that and extrapolate it to you create the universe. Basically, it's your intention that makes everything what it is. And I don't know. I, I think well, that's the point. It's an interaction. Right. It's a dance. Yeah. 
and you, and it's always a chance is this without the negative you know it's it's yeah it's an interaction it's not it's not like what you it's not a woo woo thing it's not like a you've created it and that's your reality no there's something there and you interact with it and that's that's where the meaning comes in well maybe so it's a case of we created it then no we've co-created it okay well i'm thinking in that sense i'm thinking in the sense of we collectively all human beings, all living intelligent beings everywhere have created a reality that we exist in and that we can, if we all work together, change that reality, I suppose. You know what? There's some things that are so ephemeral that it's easy to change them. And there's other, you know, the example I give is, it, you know, if, if you burn your finger or drop something on your toe, you're going you're gonna to feel the pain. That, that's, that's a very robust kind of uh, assumption. However, you know, if you concentrate hard enough, you're going to change a random number number generator. That's not really as robust, and sometimes it doesn't work, and maybe oftentimes it doesn't. Right. But, but the, the the point is that there's degrees here of how you can interact with that so-called um, external reality. I mean, that, that's that's something I haven't made a decision on. I don't know if it's you know the world exists because because we have so you know quote unquote created it, but our interaction with it. And our perception of it is all we have to work with. And trying to get out of that is the problem. One of the things we, talk, we talked about, that guy from JPL and I, was uh, dark matter and dark energy. And it took a long time for a lot of astronomers and physicists to come to the conclusion that there's something there affecting everything, but we don't know what it is. We can't see it, but we can see its effects. Right, right. Obviously, it's there. Right. And we can see its effects, but we don't really understand what the mechanisms are that generate those effects, really. Right. It's brave for people to say, hey, we don't know everything and we're going to have to try and find this out. So our working hypothesis is something called, quote unquote, dark matter. They don't know if it's matter. It has the effects of matter and energy. They don't know if it's energy, but it has the effects that energy would have that is observed on the what? Um, two or three percent of the universe right now that they think is the observable universe is two or three percent of the uh, whatever's present in it. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item Paracast Offer 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013. 
Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Greg Bishop joining us. We're talking about dark matter. What about the collective unconscious? What about it? <laughs> okay. I think, that, I think that, you know, when you're talking about abductions and UFOs and things like that, to get back to that, is that if you think of the idea of a collective unconscious, you're being affected by things that you don't really have any control over, but that we on some level somewhere agree that is, is our reality. Um, even though we don't verbalize it, meaning you could see something flying in, you know, flying over a field and it looks like an Adamski flying saucer. Well, that, and you've never heard of Adamski flying saucers um, or seen one. Uh, how did you get that idea? Well, maybe it's because either one, there are Adamski flying saucers flying over the field, or somehow you've communicated with everybody else that's ever, you know, dealt with UFOs or seen them and pulled that information out somehow. I know that sounds woo-woo and, and stupid, but there's enough cases where people have seen things and they've, you know, or experienced things and it seems to match up with what other people have seen and experienced, yet they, you know, they, they say they've never been interested in such things. Well, there are certain archetypes that seem to be valid. You know, we look at, we've talked a lot on this show about the morphology of UFOs, the different shapes, sizes, configurations and there do seem to be certain standards you know there's certain types of shapes that are constantly recurring the disc shape is a constantly recurring shape with a whole variety of variations but the basic shape is usually you know the disc shape or a cigar shape or a sphere uh, you know you can then sort of go off into tangents off of that but for the most part you can map Maybe 95% of UFO sightings that, and again, let's let's qualify this: truly unidentified flying objects, not stuff you've already you know sort of siphoned off as being unexplained natural phenomena we don't know about, or secret government craft that are that are unknown to the public. Once you get all that stuff out of the way, there are certain things that seem to hold true. And perhaps there's a way to then use that to get some understanding. And, you know, in the case of a disk, for example, you know, if you're talking about things like aerodynamics, well, you know, aerodynamics are, produce a certain type of design of craft because of the whole issue of using the air, you know, the medium in which uh, an airplane's going to fly. If you're not using the air in the same way, then all of a sudden the notion of what we know to be aerodynamics sort of goes away and you know so there are certain things that we can say well you talk about the Adamski saucer well at that point are we talking you know who which came first the chicken or the egg right and, and, and to me that when we talk about this topic that ends up being so much of what I focus on is is sourcing things 
So you look at some of the, what I consider, I personally consider to be some bogus accounts like Adamski or the Billy Meyer stuff, you know, where you, you have these shapes. Well, look, it's a Meyer craft. Well, is it that or did, you know, this this Swiss guy basically get an inspiration for his models from popular movies? And and you could certainly easily make that case, you know. And, and so at that point, which came first, the chicken or the egg? When people talk about the greys, uh, there seem to be some group of people that seem to think that this all sprung out of communion, that basically so many people sort of locked onto that archetype, that image, and whatever confusion there was in their head that that became sort of a beacon for them and then then they reinterpret maybe their own experiences based on someone now providing them a visual archetype you know here it is oh gee and and so that ends up being in essence a function of the human brain and and human psychology yeah okay now here's the question for you how do you then reconcile that with some number of legitimate potentially legitimate real experiences where people are really seeing stuff that seems to map into that is the, is it because whatever the other is they have knowledge of our cultural conditioning and they you know it, one of the things i think we can say with some degree of certainty is whatever that thing is they seem to have some ability of manipulating the human psyche there seems to clearly be some level of psychic control they can exert over us. Now, if you can do that, if you're a being that can do that to another being, stands to reason that you could, by the same mechanisms, sort of call up imagery that's in that being's mind and superimpose that, hence the whole screen memory thing. Once you do that, can't you then come at this from the point of view of, well, if your thoughts are no longer even your own, how can there be any degree of objectivity in describing what happened to you? I don't think there can be any kind of objectivity in the in the UFO field. It's 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 impossible because it's an unknown, and we have to wrap our metaphors around it. Um, and you're coming at it from the point of view that whatever it is that's causing these things is controlling our minds and making us see these things. I'm of the opinion that we're a lot more active in forming whatever this is than than it is. I, I feel like it's you know it's silly putty until our mind gets a hold of it. That, granted, the, the the putty is there, but um, our mind has molded it to what is acceptable before it even reaches conscious awareness. Um, Joe McMonigle's book, um, uh, God, what was his first book? I can't remember the name of it. But the the remote viewer, Joe McMonigle, he um, had a little essay in the middle of his book describing what he thought perception consisted of. And basically the upshot of it was that basically in like a quarter of a second before something that's outside your, that is not you, something that's outside your body, hits your consciousness, it's already been decided what it is. So you're never going to, you can never specifically see or experience what the thing that you're perceiving is especially if it's something you haven't seen before because your mind has made a decision about what it's going to be. Jeremy, I was talking to Jeremy Vaney, and he said that he had talked to some woman that it was out walking in the evening or something like that, and she saw a UFO, you know, hovering over her, but it wasn't a disc or a, you know, a, a cigar shape or a boomerang or a sphere. She said it, what it looked like was the Starship Enterprise flying upside down. <laughs> 
You know, what, well, where, did, it, where did that come from? Is that what she decided to put? You know, to me, that's evidence, if it's a true story, that her mind somewhere decided to use that whole Star Trek mythos as as a as a uh, template for what she was seeing out there uh, in the air. Well, my response to that would be that there's a paranormal episode I talked about on the Paracast uh, that I went through with one of my close old friends, my buddy Bill. We saw a full body apparition in southern Florida. Both of us saw it. It went on for more than a few minutes. Uh, we got close to this thing. I know what it looked like. It looked like a girl. It looked like uh, like a teenage girl, young woman, wearing specific period clothing, wearing some kind of bell-bottom jeans, some kind of fringy jacket. Listeners of the show know the story already. I mean, we basically were sitting within maybe 15 feet of this thing that... Uh, it was daylight. This thing had no visible eyes or mouth. Where the eyes and the mouth were, were in shadow and mm. not discernible. And we were at very close proximity. We both watched this thing dematerialize. We both watched this. So you know, at that point, I would say to you that we, we extensively compared notes after it happened because, like, for the next two or three days, neither of us, like, slept. Yeah. It just, just, like, totally freaked us out. So the point of this... We went over in, in rather sort of grilling detail the specifics of what we had seen. Now, now, Greg, I can't tell you what we saw. I mean, I don't preconceive notions. I can just describe something that we witnessed, and there's a lot more detail behind this. But the point is, if someone wants to say to me, okay, well, you know, that was something that um, you know, the two of you had some consensual hallucination. Mm, <laughs> I don't think so. We were both there quite sober, watching this thing, and there were a lot of details around this, but my whole point about this is that I agree that, you know, to some extent we bring our preconceived notions and prejudices to the table. At the same time, when you have a shared experience, when you have more than one person going through something, and you can now sort of, I think, isolate certain things outside of the game of perception and say, well, okay, there might be some minute differences in our recollections of what we saw, but for the most part, you know, here are the big round details. Here's what we saw. When you look at that, I have to tell you, not only did I not bring any preconceived notions to it, I still don't know what it is that we saw. I bring this whole thing up because at a recent, I was recently at a dinner with, among other people, Bud Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And I brought this experience up and, and recounted it, not in extensive detail, but actually what Bud did was to then map this into the abduction experience. Of course. He said, well, you know, that's that sounds like a screen memory. And I said, mm, I don't think so. There's no lost time here. We both watched this thing. There was no sense of interruption of time. But I don't think this has anything to do with abduction stuff. I think what we saw was some sort of anomalous thing. I don't know what it was. You know, was it a non-human entity looking to fool us into seeing something that it wasn't? Well, actually, based on the description I just made, maybe... Was there a, you know, were we in that time frame pulled aboard a ship and did we have our, you know, nipples examined? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Uh, I really don't think so. So, yeah, I mean, to a certain degree, I understand what you're saying. At the same time, when you have, you know, a, a mass event happen uh, with more than two people, let's say, or you have, in the case of UFO cases, you have some really solid cases that involve things like 
radar trajectory information, you know, la trace landing impressions where you have a physical craft that's landed, and from that you can actually come up with an idea of mass and weight. I mean, at that point, when we have physical, you know, things like yeah. that. Well, you're making the mistake that I'm, I'm applying this idea to all UFO encounters and sightings. I'm not. I'm applying okay. it to some of them. And what I said earlier about certain things having more robustness than others, I'm not saying that there's nothing there or just, you know, some strange energy thing that our, our minds form, are, you know, which may happen sometimes. Hmm. What I'm saying that is that there's a lot of different aspects of the UFO phenomenon and unfortunately, because of the way, way our brains are made, we can only talk about, you know, things on a case-by-case -case basis. Because, like I said before, any idea you have about some kind of unified field theory of UFOs is a, invariably going to run into problems very quickly. Right, absolutely. So we have to kind of do it piecemeal. You know, to me that's fascinating, too, because it, it reveals how we deal with information and how we deal with experience and how our minds process information and, you know what our instruments tell us and yeah I, I think there's there's a physical reality to the UFOs you know to, to some observed UFOs definitely obviously now what causes those where they come from and what they are I don't know UFO researchers don't know whether they say they do or not and the government doesn't know I think we completely agree on that <laughs> well, well no I, I think we do it and, and so I want to ask you because you've been in the sandbox for a long time who then if you're gonna listen to any voices out there who do you give more weight to than others? I mean, I, I know you have your reading list here, you know, and, and, and obviously you've got someone like Jacques Vallée, who, you know, we, we deeply respect as well. We've had him on the show. Um, we're lucky enough to, to, to be able to say that. And, you know, but at the same time, he was someone who, over time, his perception of this whole thing changed rather dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the end, basically... It looks like, in, in, to a large degree, he sort of gave up and moved on. So, do you think that ultimately that is the the fate that that awaits anybody who gets involved in talking about this topic? That at a certain point, you just hit that wall and you say, "All right, that's it. You know, we can't go any further," because maybe we don't even have the ability to process what would be considered reality, even if we're handed to us. Is this then sort of a dead end? You know, this then is a cliffhanger. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We are now talking with Greg Bishop, and he's going to answer the question of the ages about UFOs, which is, can we reach this dead end and say, you know what, forget it, there's no way we'll ever understand what's going on, let's just get on with our lives such as they are, and not dwell on this. What do you think, Greg? Oh, are we going again? 
<laughs> I thought for a moment that we silenced him. Oh, no, no. Think, um, in that bit of silence, I thought, well, if I go see, you know, David Blaine or Penn and Teller, I don't know how they do their tricks, but I still enjoy the show. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's kind of how I feel about the UFO thing. I don't know where it comes from, what's causing it, um, or if there will ever be an answer, at least in our lifetimes. Because I think what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to start looking um, our collective uh, view of what reality, quote-unquote, is will have to change before we can step forward and try and understand things that are called paranormal, which includes UFOs. However, I learned so many things. This is personal, and I, people can take it for whatever they want. I learned so many new things. I learned about science. I learned about psychology. I learned about uh, how people describe things, language. There are spiritual aspects to it. And uh, that keeps me interested personally. And also, I get to, you know, meet and talk to interesting people who have a wide range of um, interests and who are, you know, if you choose your friends correct, you know, correctly, fairly intelligent and fun to hang out with. So, you know, the, the, it's a tool. The interest is a tool. And I don't know if there's an end in sight. And I've come to the... Uh, the uh, conclusion myself, at least for right now, that I don't care there's no conclusion in sight because, because, like I said, the show is so interesting. I talked to Jacques Vallée about eight years ago, I don't know, for about 20 or 30 minutes, and I just thought, why the hell is he talking to me? Um, <laughs> but I had approached him. I asked him the same thing. I said, why aren't you interested in the UFO thing anymore? And I remember exactly what he said. He said, because I was not learning anything anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what you're saying is the journey is the reward, basically. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, I was trying to think of somebody else along the same lines. Oh, Bill Moore, actually. I said, why aren't you interested in the UFO thing in any, anymore? And this was a couple years ago, when last time I actually face-to-face -face talked to him. And he said, because I went as far as I thought I could and tried to find things out, and I still didn't find out what was going on. So why bother anymore? Now now he won't even, you know, if I bring up, last time I saw him, he every time I brought up the UFO subject, he would change the subject. Yeah. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. He's off into other things. And that's how some people deal with it. Jim Mosley said the same thing. You'll always see these people saying, that's it, I'm sick of this, I'm never going to come back to it. And nine times out of ten people come back to it. And I think it's because the journey is more important, whether they acknowledge that or not. So I suppose ultimately that's the only thing we can hope to get out of it is just having spent the time having interesting discussions. Yeah, you know what? If, you, if you're interested in some sort of an answer and a conclusion, then, you know, you're screwed in the UFO arena, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think you're probably right. Uh, you know, unfortunately for some of us, uh, it, it's like we have to ask those questions, especially for those of us who have had multiple experiences, yeah. and not just along ufological lines, but like in my reality, just a whole collection and an ongoing collection of odd paranormal experiences. It's, I mean, I sometimes, and I'll say this and, and laugh when I say it, I'm sometimes amazed I'm able to remain relatively sane. So I think there are a lot of people out there who would argue about the relative level of that sanity. You mean but, you're as sane as your relatives? Uh, no, man, my relatives are really whacked out, so oh, no, okay. no. No, I, I want to be hopefully a little saner than most of my relatives. Well, that's good. Uh, that's a good thing to aspire to. No, but, but you know, Seriously. for the most part, it, it seems like for a lot of people, Greg, this is ultimately intellectually poisonous. You know, it, it seems to, to screw up their relationship to other people. 
it seems to mess up their ability to prioritize things in life. You know, this this is an easy, like, well, UFOs specifically are an easy thing to get obsessed about. And I guess people can get obsessed over anything, right? You know, you can get obsessed over, over music, which is, I, I think, sometimes where I should put my obsession otherwise, just put it back into music. Because at least with music, you know, there's another place where I realized at a certain point in my life that I was never going to be a great guitar player, but I liked playing so much that ultimately it didn't matter whether I was a great guitar player or not. I really enjoyed doing it. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, definitely, the journey was absolutely the reward. The problem is that, you know, if, you, if you're very self-critical, if you're like a perfectionist, then it gets to the point where you say, well, you know, if I can't, if I can't play really well, I'm never going to play at all. And, and, and I went through that exercise with guitar specifically. Yeah. And then after 15 years, came back to it and said, hey, wait a minute, this is really fun. Now, yeah. I don't know if this stuff is fun. Would you say that talking about these topics is fun? It's fun to me because I like playing with ideas. And, um, you know, a subject which does not have any kind of obvious answer can be talked about endlessly. And as you're talking about it, you learn other things. You know, you, I, if I wasn't interested in UFOs, would I have talked to Dean Radin? No. If I wasn't interested in paranormal and, and conspiracy type stuff and all that, and uh, science and, 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 and perception and all that, would I have talked to Robert Anton Wilson? Probably not. And I did, and my life is so much enriched because of it. And, you know, would I be talking to you you people or no Nick or, or Paul Kimball or Mac Tonys or, or Peter Robbins? All these people are incredibly interesting and have all kinds of other interests, and we bond on the UFO subject, and I, th- I think that's wonderful. All right, so who do you now, in this little sandbox of people, who do you regret having spoken to? Anyone? Well, if I regret speaking to somebody, it's over very quickly because I just like I have nothing to learn from this this jerk off, so I'm just <laughs> I'm not going to pursue it. No, I, I don't regret speaking to anybody really because you know if I'm going to speak to anybody at any length, there has to be something interesting that I want to hear from them. I mean, there's times where I've walked in and you know listened to listen to half of a lecture at something and then just walked out because like you know like Jacques Vallee said, I'm not learning anything. Um, you know, I, there's very few people in the field I actively dislike. In fact, there's only one, actually. Who is that? Uh, Sean Morton. Ooh, there you go. Good choice. Good choice. Yeah, we, uh, we have no great love for him either. Why is that? Yeah, please, go ahead. The reason was uh, basically one interaction. I was speaking at the um, Bay Area UFO conference. They promised me that they'd have a computer hookup so I could do a... They do this dumb thing where they you have to, like, give a presentation and then people pay for your workshop. Right. Which I think is not a very nice way to treat people who are spending hard-earned money to come to a UFO or anomalies conference. However, and I'm not going back to that. They'll never invite me back, so I don't care what I say about them or what they think about what I say. But I'm up there trying to do my presentation about Paul Benowitz and get people to come and see that, which ultimately three people ended up coming to see. There were more people taping me than than, uh, were in the audience. As I'm doing this, and Morton was on right before me doing his spiel for his workshop, and I'm up there talking and trying to do this thing without my PowerPoint, explain to people, you know, what my presentation was going to be about. And five minutes into it, Sean Morton walks in the middle of the hall and at the top of his lungs says, Hey, where's my, where's the room I'm supposed to be in? Does anybody know? <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm giving a presentation here, asshole. What are you doing? <laughs> 
yeah, it's all about him. And then I did my presentation, and you know, there were a few people there, and it was fine. You know, I have three people, and they're all sitting in different parts of the auditorium. I say, everybody move up front, Jesus, you know, don't sit all the way back there. Come up here, and we can talk a little bit more. I don't even have to do my regular presentation because there's so few of you. Anyway, I finished it. People were nice about it. They, you know, I talked to them a little bit. Then I walk outside, and there's something like 80 people sitting around Sean Morton with video cameras while he's talking. Yeah. And one guy comes up to me after my talk, and he says, oh, you know those blue lights that, that surrounded some of the UFOs that Benowitz took videos of? I was, yeah. Oh, Sean says that those are those are due to, I don't know what the hell it was, some stupid spiritual, sorry. And, um, you know, and another, I was working on a show called The Conspiracy Zone, if you remember that, uh, Kevin Nealon hosted it. Um, oh no, that sounds good. Kevin Nealon, really? Yeah, he was he was good too. I mean, he I don't think he's like he's not real sharp, but he's very funny. He's he's yeah, his, his, his comic. He's very good comedian. I mean, like you know, no wonder he's famous. But um, I mean, not very sharp about that because it was basically the conspiracy and UFO stuff, and he I don't think he really cared about that. What he cared about was the job and doing a good job on a show, which is which is his job. They were thinking of having Bill Moore on the show. And I, I went to Bill, and he goes, yeah, well, maybe if they pay. I don't really. I'm not that interested. I said, okay, why don't we just go to lunch with him, and you tell them what you've got. Um, and it was basically for the Philadelphia Experiment, because he'd written that first book on it. And we're sitting there, and Sean Morton walks in the restaurant. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I know it's him, and I'm like, oh, God, no. He walks up to the table, and he goes, so what are you guys doing? <laughs> we're ha and one of the producers who was a girl I think he was trying to pick up on said we're having a private business lunch he goes well do you mind if I you know mind if I sit down and they said we're having a private business lunch he said okay and he sat down oh see I would have just I picked him up by the scruff of his neck and said see ya man I, just, I would have physically removed him anyway I'm, I'm like, like I said there's people yeah. I disagree with and I, people I think that are kind of useless but you know, I don't really care. You know, it's fine. I'm not going to waste any emotional energy on them. And I don't really on Morton either. But because of these personal interactions, I have a, I have a specific personal dislike. So and, uh, you know, I acknowledge you know, that. <laughs> so, Greg, I mean, as you well know, the Paracast has taken it upon itself, ourselves, to grab some of these people who we feel, we feel are charlatans and essentially expose them. Do you, do you think that we're uh, uh, doing something good or bad there? I think you're doing something good, but I don't listen. Because I've already made my mind up about these people. So the one I did listen to was Bill Nell, because I didn't know that much about him. So I did listen to that one. I enjoyed it. Okay. You know, okay. But if you're interviewing Sean Morton, it's like, I know what his spiel is, and I don't care, and I'm not going to listen to it. If you're interviewing Stephen Greer, I know what his spiel is, I don't care, and I'm not going to listen to it. What? You don't, you don't appreciate his disclosure work? <laughs> I appreciate some of his disclosure work, but it's yeah. so mixed up with all the other stuff that just oh makes so many people outside of the field and inside of it laugh at him that it's it, it you know it disavows any good work he does absolutely i think that that is we can absolutely agree on that um now remember that okay so so you think we're doing good things and what what it's important to remember um and the reason we do that by the way is because of the fact that we get so many emails from people who will say well what do you think about the billy meyer stuff aren't those photos great and it's like, no, those photos are terrible. And we, we need to sort of educate people because one of, prob one of the problems, certainly in the UFO field, is that every new generation of people comes in and essentially they're starting from scratch, um, yeah. which is very frustrating because they don't take the time to do the research. They basically will glom on to the same stuff that's been discredited over and over. 
and they'll start bringing up the same stuff. And uh, and that's a question for you. Are we doomed to that forever? You think yes. that's just some Yeah. Hmm. Right now, with the way pe- the society is set up and the way science looks at things and the way that uh, people are taught in school and all these other factors that go into making us who we are and the society we live in, at least in the West, in the United States, Great Britain, you know, probably Mexico, South America, whatever, um, is, is, uh, is not set up so that the UFO subject is taken seriously. So guess what it's going to attract? Um, so, and this is what I said to uh, Hastings when he was in the in the forums when he said, you know, don't you think it's important for us to expose these things, and especially MJ12? And I said, no, because nobody outside the UFO community really cares. And if you plug this one up, you're going to get five more things. You know, I think it's a personal, you know, personal vendetta, whatever you want to call it, with him about the MJ12 because of interactions he's had with Doty and more. However. It doesn't, you know, has, no, you know, it doesn't affect me on his other work on UFOs and nukes because I think that's great and it's real important. However, what I said in the thing was, you know, you plug up that leak and four more appear in its place. You plug those up, four or five more are going to appear. So don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about what, what about the junk out there because if people come into it, they're going to, if they're intelligent and thoughtful. They're going to look for the find the intelligent and thoughtful stuff, and if they're not, they're going to glom on to the to you know to the the new age you know junk, and that's always going to happen. So you know why bother? That's my attitude. Um, if you want to expose people and show them for what they are, I think that's fine. It's just you know, and I think it's a you know I think it's a good service. That's not my service though. Right. I'm not. We're not trying to say that you know that should be everybody's spiel. Um, you know, obviously for most people. I think most people who cover this topic would find that essentially distasteful. They don't want to be part of that because there's some negativity involved. But I have to tell you, um, in Westchester County, New York, close to where I live, I had gone to a couple of meetings. There's a local MUFON group that meets in Westchester. Mm-hmm. And it's run by a couple of people who are wa- doe-eyed believers. They're just doe-eyed believers. It's really bad. And one of the very first meetings I ever went to, I only went to two or three of them, and then I, I got so turned off I never went back. But, you know, I, I started asking some questions. I didn't identify who anything about who I was. I just started asking some questions. And one of the two people that runs the meeting had, like, a folder of MJ-12 stuff, and he throws it down on the table, and he goes, well, what do you think about that? We all know that's real. And I looked at him, and I said, really? You know that's real? And this was a cross-section of all sorts of people. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just doe-eyed believers. There were a bunch of different people in the room. Yeah. But these people in authority in the situation, it was their group, they were running it, you know, they presented this as uh, accepted fact, these documents. This is accepted fact. And I said, well, I, I you know, I, I disagree. Well, why do you say that? And so, you know, invariably, it's almost like you, you have to have the same arguments over and over again. There is no one place, there's no one repository, one acknowledged place where you can get some, some, again, not this is what's true, this is what's not true, just here's noise, here's signal. And yeah. so, you know, here's how, and maybe the only way to do this is actually to give people the tools to becoming better critical thinkers. You know, you can't right. tell them what to think, but if you teach them how to deploy critical thinking, maybe at that point they can come to their own conclusions. It's kind of like, you know, the, 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 the types of hosts who will present everything and go, well, we're just conduits. Make up your own minds. 
To which I respond, well, you know, you're assuming at that point people have the ability of analyzing what's set down in front of them. Maybe what you really need to do is teach them how to think critically to some degree and then give them, you know, once you do that, then give them all the data and say, here, you sift through it. But yeah. here's some tools to bring to the process. This has been an enjoyable session of sifting through facts and fiction otherwise with Greg Bishop. Greg, tell our listeners one more time where we can find more of the things that you do. Uh, the most easiest place to find and is updated almost daily is ufomystic.com. I have a site called excludedmiddle.com, which has my old magazine stuff on it. And uh, what I forgot to mention the first time is I have, like everybody else, a podcast radio show which airs live on Sunday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Pacific time at killradio.org. Which is right after the Paracast ends on Sunday. So you can go from one to the other. Greg Bishop, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thanks so much for having me on by myself. And, of course, we could go on for hours. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.